Hi, welcome to our office hours at Ruby. This is a section where you can ask our chefs anything about cooking, and we'll give you our responses to be able to continue on in your classes, to be able to help in some cooking, or to have any side questions that you have about cooking as well. My name is Dan Merrick. I'm the Director of Plant-Based Culinary and Development at Ruby, and I focus mainly on whole food plant-based diets, but I can answer some questions outside of that as well. I have about a 15-year background um, in vegan and vegetarian cooking, working for Whole Foods Markets. Uh, I've been a Slow Food board member for about five years, worked with Whole Kids Foundation to be able to help uh, educate teachers and give them a better understanding of nutrition, and then also helped bring whole food school or whole foods to schools instead of just uh, all the process that they've been eating for so long. I did that for a number of years before coming to Ruby. Today, um, we're going to go through a list of questions through our platform here on the live events. Now, the way we use our live events is when you're on the page here, you can actually just look on the top right and you'll see a little box that says add question here. You can just type your question into that box and then hit the black add button and it will be moderated through the back end and then sent up to our screen on the right hand side. If you see a question on the right hand side that you like, just hit the little heart icon and it'll actually boost that up further and further the more votes it gets. So with that being said, we're going to jump right into our questions here um, and get started. Hopefully you guys had a good holiday weekend if you're in the States. Um, we had a, a lot of great weather and a lot of great cooking. So uh, if you guys have any questions about any plant-based cooking for the holidays, please join them in as well too. Our first one comes from Kanish. And he, um, they say, is it necessary to go to culinary school to become a great chef or can you learn on your own? It's actually a great question. Um, I actually personally never went to culinary school. I've taught at a lot of different culinary schools. And I think that most chefs would tell you that um, it's really a personal preference on the learning style that you appreciate most. Um, there are a lot of people that learn best in an academia, um, in an academic setting where they're you know, going through a certain way, just like they would in any kind of school, um, and that works best for them. But there are a lot of chefs that uh, learn best doing, um, so actually being in the restaurant or in the kitchens themselves. Um, that's the way that I came up, was I basically worked my way up. I started as a dishwasher and then to a waiter, and then uh, got onto a line cook position, um, and then just kept working my way up as well, getting up to the highest level of chef uh, that I could at the location that I was at. Um, now, there are a lot of different ways to be able to work with restaurants. Some um, There's a technique that's called staging, which is actually going to work for a very well-known restaurant to be able to help learn techniques um, and really help advance your skill set like that, where you go for a certain you know number of weeks or months um, to be able to do that. Now, that's a very traditional culinary, uh, you know, method that people used to do a lot more. It hasn't happening as much, um, but you'll still see veteran chefs doing that technique as well. Um, but, you know, beyond going to culinary school or working in restaurants, you can also, you know, learn to cook on your own through platforms like Ruby by taking classes and getting, um, you know, certificates to be able to kind of advance your skill sets through cooking. 
And the more and more you cook, the better and better you'll get at it. So to answer your question, it's definitely not necessary to go to culinary school to be able to become a great chef. Um, the key to becoming a great chef is honestly repetition, doing it lots and lots. So there's a, there's a reason that people work at restaurants um, to become better chefs because you're doing the same dish hundreds of times, um, sometimes hundreds of times in one day. So the more that you're doing that and the more repetition you get, the better you're going to get at it. So take like cutting onions, for an example, to be able to get a really nice uniform cut on onions. The first time you ever do a dice on an onion, it might not come out that uniformly, but the more and more you do it, the better and more uniform that onion is going to become um, as you're going and the faster you're going to get being able to slice and dice that onion. So there are a couple different ways to be able to make that happen. Um, but by and large, it's repetition and doing it often. So if you do that through something like Ruby as a, uh, you know, an online culinary school or a culinary school as a brick and mortar, or just by working in restaurants, those are all great ways to be able to work on your culinary skills to be able to get them up to par. I hope that helps. All right, so I have one from Elodie. Uh, hello, in one of the Forks Over Knives recipes, it says you can serve the dish with fresh harasa. Do you have a recipe for that, please? Thank you. Yes, actually, harasa is a great, uh, you know, it's a great um, pepper, kind of a dip, or, you know, a lot of people will use it um, as a paste on, you know, like tofus or tempehs and stuff like that. It's typically uh, African-based from, um, you know, what I've known. I do a lot of fun dishes with it too from, you know, Brian Terry uses it a lot in some of his cookbooks. So there's like a harasa stuffed avocado recipe that I love. And typically the harasa that I make is from dried New Mexico chilies. So those are those seven, I usually do about seven red chilies. They're about this size, you know, um, and they're dried out as well. You can go with hotter chilies if you want to, it just depends on how hot you want it. Um, and I'll also put in about, two uh, roasted red peppers that have been, you know, if you use them jarred, you can just rinse them off. Um, but if you're just using them, you're roasting yourself, just put them in as they are. About two to three tablespoons of tomato paste as well, uh, about four garlic cloves. And then the seasonings, um, I usually do about a teaspoon of caraway seed, but you want to toast those first and then grind them up. And then about two teaspoons of coriander, two teaspoons of cumin, about a teaspoon of smoked paprika as well. It adds more color to that as well. And then if you want it hot, you can add a little bit of cayenne pepper, you know, starting at maybe a half a teaspoon and can gradually go up if you want to. You can always add a little bit more later. Um, salt, if you want it, I usually barely use any, maybe just a tiny pinch. And then you want to put in the juice of a lemon to be able to get some acid into it. And then um, typically people use olive oil in it. Um, and you kind of, when you're mixing everything in the food processor, you pour the oil in to be able to help emulsify everything into it as well. You can totally do it without the oil as well. It just uh, helps kind of blend the flavors a little bit more together. So if you're doing a no oil diet, you can completely skip that, um, you know, and that's actually one of the reasons that the avocado thing works kind of well, because it adds a fat to it. Um, so, but yeah, that's kind of my simple recipe for harasa. 
Um, you can, there's a lot of different recipes up there. There are a lot of different dried peppers and chilies that you can use. Um, and there's a lot of different varieties on it. So, um, you know, feel free to Google something and see um, some of the different recipes that we offer. We also have one on the, um, the recipe page for Ruby. Um, I haven't tried that one specifically. Um, this other one that I use, I do it pretty regularly. So I, I know that one pretty well. All right, so here's another one from Melody. Um, please, when preparing onions, it really irritates my eyes. Have you got any tips that I don't cry, um, even suffering an hour after slicing? Ooh, I hope uh, you'll be able to help a lot of us. So yeah, what is happening there is the there are certain gases that are actually being released off of those onions, and that's actually what's irritating your eyes. And, you know, there are a lot of different things that actually happen uh, through that. And basically what I've, I've heard is that the longer the um, onion is in the ground, the worse the gases that come out are. So it's kind of like the older the onion is, the more gases you're coming out. So of course it's impossible if you're buying a, an onion at a grocery store or even a farmer's market to know how long that onion's been in the ground. So I've heard a lot of different tips on how, on how to really uh, prevent that. One of them that I don't use is, uh, you know, but I've heard works is putting the onion in the freezer and putting it in the freezer for 15 minutes before you're cutting it uh, apparently works. It tr helps trap those gases within the, the skin of the onions. Um, another technique is to not cut the root end of the onion first, right? So if you're cutting up your onion, just leave the root end attached. Uh, that's actually a technique I've seen some chefs use. Um, I personally don't use that one either. What I usually use is I use a hood vent or a fan to be able to help just blow the gases away from my eyes. So I might have a fan in the kitchen or I might have a hood vent above where I'm actually cooking and that actually helps relieve some of the gases from going right up into my eyes because I'm blowing them out of the way. So those are probably three of the most common tips that I know to be able to prevent uh, the gases from irritating your eyes as you're cutting onions because it can definitely happen quite often. All right, our next one is from Lisa. Uh, recommended brands of chef knives and how to tell if it's a good fit for your hand. The best way to keep produce fresh in a refrigerator. Okay, so the first one, uh, chef knives. You know, I don't typically tell people a specific brand of chef knife because I always tell people it's, you know, the best knife is a sharp chef knife. Um, I use a multitude of different kinds of chef knives um, and just depending, you know, where I am or if they're in my knife bag or if they're home, um, I always tell people to find, uh, you know, the best way to, that fits in your hand, which is your question. So you want to be able to, I typically grab the blade um, with, I don't have something I can give you an example with here, but if I were to, here, let's use my glasses case. So if I, if this was my blade, um, I want to be able to put two fingers on the, the blade of the knife and then wrap these three fingers around the handle, basically. Um, and putting those three fingers around there with your two fingers on the actual blade itself is probably, uh, you know, the, it's the best way to be able to hold it. But you want to also be make sure that it fits in your hand really well. So the curvature of the handle and where your three fingers are holding on the handle really well. And then also where uh, this actually touches the blade um, on the top of it to be able to make sure that it's comfortable as you're chopping. Because uh, a lot of people just... Um, you know, grow a chef's callus there from having the top of the blade hitting them so often right there as well. So um, finding a comfortable one is really finding how that fits in your hand as you're holding it properly. 
um, that's really the best you know way to be able to see how it fits properly in your hand and how comfortable it is. Now, as far as brands go, there's so many different ones out there. You know, some people might swear by Global or Hinkler or there's a lot of ones. I, you know, use uh, the ones that I use typically um, at home. I use Wolstoff knives just because it's something that my family, you know, we used to use those when I was a kid. And when I was much younger, we used to, you know, do knife exchanges and stuff like that. Um, and we'd get like a knife for Christmas or something like that. And just kind of added on that collection. Um, when I'm doing stuff on the road in my knife bag, though, I usually use Shun, which is a Japanese brand, you know, so a very different kind. Um, and, you know, over the years, you collect different knives as a chef, too. So you just kind of, you know, get, you know, affinities towards different kinds and brands don't really fit into that as much. But um, you, you can do just a quick search and there's a lot of different brands that are the top ones that are recommended. Um, you know, but I don't think that there's one brand that's better than all the other ones. What I always tell people is to make sure that the tang of the, the blade, so you'll see that the blade, it actually goes through the handle. So make sure that you can see the metal going through the handle because you don't want the knife just kind of breaking off at the handle either way. It's, uh, I've seen some cheap knives do that. So just making sure that there's a full tang on it. And the best way to keep fresh produce in your refrigerator. Um, Wow, there's a lot of different ways to be able to keep produce in your fridge because there's so many different kinds of produce, um, you know, so something like mushrooms, you know, a lot of times they'll come in like a package with plastic over them. I usually open up the, the package so they're not just trapped in that air in there and uh, mushrooms breathing a little bit usually has a little bit better in a paper bag is actually the best way to be able to store mushrooms um, for greens. I usually keep them in the crisper. Um, in the drawer, uh, you know, in the fridge to be able to keep them crisp. Um, you know, other produce that I'm keeping in there, you know, like uh, like herbs, I'll treat like flowers. So I'll cut the bottom of the stems off for the flowers and then put them into a glass of water and then take the produce bag and put them over the top to be able to retain in some of that moisture and they last at least a week in the fridge that way. Um, yeah, most greens I'm going to keep in a crisper, either in a, uh, a sealed container or kind of wrapped in, um, you know, a damp tape, uh, paper towel. Um, you know, things like zucchini and peppers and stuff like that, I keep typically keep in a crisper as well, too. Um, yeah, it really depends. There's so many different kinds of produce out there, and uh, each one has a little bit of a different variety for it. Uh, I always tell people, see how they store them at the grocery store as well, too. If an item is not refrigerated at the grocery store, then it doesn't need to be refrigerated at your house. Um, so keep that in mind. Um, so there are certain things that I wouldn't refrigerate, like tomatoes. Don't refrigerate those until you've already used them. And then if you do refrigerate them after you use them, just let them come to room temperature before you're actually using them or serving them too. You'll get a much better flavor out of it. Um, so I hope that helps, Lisa. All right, Sharon, I'm a beginner and recently bought several good Japanese knives. How do I take care of them? My husband suggests a honing stick. The course uh, has a whetstone and an Amazon knife sharpener. Yeah, so those are all great ways to be able to um, keep those in great shape. You know, the number one thing for keeping, you know, uh, knives, especially Japanese knives, never put them in the refrigerator or in the refrigerator, in the dishwasher, sorry. You can, I guess you could put them in the refrigerator, but don't put them in the dishwasher. Um, a lot of people make that mistake and think they're just like, you know, all kinds of other like cutlery, like butter knives and stuff like that. And they, it's the quickest way to dull your knives. So make sure not to put your knives in the dishwasher. 
um, and clean them on their own. You know, make sure that they're not just thrown in with everything else. Uh, they're to be taken care of very gently. Um, and the more you do that, the longer they'll last. Um, your husband's idea of a honing stick or a honing tool, great idea. Um, you know, I use a honing tool almost every time I use a knife. Um, and even on the road, I bring a honing tool with me too. Because uh, every time I use that honing tool, it gets my knife just a little bit sharpener. Now it's not, or sharper, it's not sharpening the blade as much as it's honing it. So as you're using your knife and you're cutting, it's just naturally starting to curve over to one side. And what that honing tool does is knock that off so it's flat again and you actually have a very sharp edge. So instead of being curved over, it'll hone it on each side. Now you typically, there are a lot of different videos on using a honing tool, but um, I like to put it down, basically kind of put the tip down like that and uh, you know go back and forth at a 25 degree angle. You'll see people go back and forth like this as well too. It just depends on what you're comfortable with. But a honing tool is a wonderful thing to be able to keep your knives nice and sharp um, and to keep the, the edge really nice on those. Now, as far as sharpening them, um, uh, a stone is definitely the preferred way. You know, a whetstone is something that people have used for about like many, many uh, years to be able to uh, sharpen their, their blades. There are electric ones out there and there are ones that you can just pull a knife through as well too. And those work and they're, they're fine to be able to do. The ones that you just kind of pull your knife through and there's no mechanics to it, typically are more like a honing tool, just kind of a fancy one. Um, and the uh, there are electric ones and I use the electric ones too. Um, and they have different grades of them. So you can go like, you know, uh, really, you know, it's like a sandpaper, really fine or uh, coarser. Um, depending on how, you know, how dull your blade is. Um, now, depending on how often you're cooking, you might not need to sharpen as often as you think, you know. Um, uh, you know, a professional chef, like in a kitchen, might be sharpening their knives like once a month because they're cutting so much, like hundreds of onions, you know, um, on a shift or something like that. Um, but at home, you might... It might only be like every six months you need to sharpen your knives, but you'll be able to tell right away when your knives are too dull. If your knife is having a difficulty cutting through a tomato, you know it's time to sharpen them. Really, if it's having difficulty sharpening or cutting through anything, it's probably time to sharpen them. And I always say that the, the safest knife is a sharp one, so keep them as sharp as you can. Hope that helps, Sharon. Hi, Chef Dan. I'm having a rough time with making oat milk from scratch. Oat milk is my family's preferred plant-based milk. I have a Vitamix and it's often gooey. I tried with cooked oatmeal and it was so thick I just couldn't strain it. Any tips? Thank you, Michelle. Yeah, actually, I make oat milk quite often and uh, I actually know exactly what's going on here um, is the oat, you're basically blending your oats too long. Um, to be able to make oat milk, what I typically do is I'll take oats, the water, and I'll usually take a date or two and put them into it. Um, and I'll blend the date first, typically, and then the oats, because the oats only need about 45 to 50 seconds on the Vitamix to be able to blend it up. Um, Vitamixes are great, but they actually heat up sometimes on the bottom, too. And what's happening is it's starting to cook your oats, too. Um, and if you overdo it, it's going to come out gooey. So uh, try blending for a shorter amount of time. And then what you want to do to strain it is basically... Um, you know, just put it uh, through a strainer, but you want a microfine strainer. So if you can't find a microfine strainer, a t-shirt actually works really, really well. So make sure it's clean. 
Um, but yeah, so doing, you know, 30 to 45 seconds, um, you know, in the Vitamix will actually work really well. And then strain it through a microfine, um, you know, as it goes through and you have just the liquid as well. Um, a lot of people like to do it a couple times to make it really, really, um, you know, so you get all of the, the chunks and everything out of that as well, too. Cheesecloth is typically too, it's not, um, you know, fine enough. So I think a t-shirt or a towel might be a regular, uh, a better thing for that, too. Um, and Elodie says, oh, yeah, uh, with oat milk, I only leave 30 seconds and the milk is really great. Yep. Perfect. And here's another one from Elodie is, hi, Chef Dan. Thank you for bringing value to the table. Glad to. Um, all the very best to you and a Ruby team. Does Ruby originate from the recipe Rue? Just wondering. Yes, it actually does. Uh, when um, Joe and Don were starting the company, they um, thought that was a great name as kind of basing it off of a Rue. Um, as you know, the flour-based uh, start to rest um, to that recipe is a roux. Yeah, so it does start from roux, and then be added to the end. Um, all right, our next question is: Any tips on how to achieve tender oyster mushrooms? Should I cook them until just before they start losing moisture, or is it okay to go past that point? Yeah, and actually, it's totally okay to go a little past that point. But you, um, right when they're losing their moisture, there is kind of your key point to be able to keep them really tender, right? So a lot of people like a caramelized oyster mushroom, and some people like them just to kind of almost melt in your mouth. Um, and to be able to keep some of that liquid in there, you know, you want to kind of get right between those two marks, you know. So um, a lot of people do pressing methods, you know, with that, which uh, you know can typically lose a bit of the internal moisture from the mushroom itself and then they'll add a sauce to it um, but if you're looking to be able to do a tender oyster mushroom without a sauce you want to get it to right at the point where it's starting to lose its liquid and just getting a little bit of caramelization on it and you'll actually get a really tender mushroom in that same way now if you are adding a sauce to it that's a whole different thing you can basically um, you know if you're pressing it or just cooking it into it you can take it a little further so you get a little bit more of that caramelization and the, adding the sauce into it right after it's starting to lose its liquid because then it will soak in that liquid into the mushroom and create it tender as well. But that's a great question. All right. Uh, Chef Dan, your voice is so soothing. Wow, thank you so much. No problem at all. All right. Grace, uh, could you please tell us again how to cook dry black beans? Mine keeps staying hard. I do buy fresh beans soaked. 24 to 48 hours. Please tell us every step again. Thank you, Grace. Yes, this is a common problem, specifically with black beans. So a lot of people will tell you, oh, I do it in a pressure cooker or my Instapot. I actually tell people not to do that, to be able to um, cook them on a stovetop and use an open pot, you know, that you can add water to. And I mean, you can still cover them, you know, but uh, you, you want it to be able to add water to it because, um, you know, beans are very different. So, uh, you know, if you're buying from the same makers and stuff like that, you still are going to get a variety of different sizes and thicknesses. Um, because they're in nature, it's not perfect and it's not going to be perfect every time. And because of that, black beans can take a little longer or a little shorter to be able to cook. So, um, you know, I think you're soaking for 24 to 48 hours is great. Um, definitely dump the water off that you've been soaking those beans in um, and then start with a new batch of water. So fill up your your pot with your beans and then um, the, the water over the top after you soak them again, bring it to a boil, down to a simmer. 
I typically add at least one piece of kombu, which is a seaweed into the bean as well too. It helps bring out some of the, um, you know, the gases that are in the bean and makes it a little more tender too. And then bring it down to a simmer and I'll typically boil it uh, or simmer it for a good at least hour and 45 minutes on my black beans. Um, and sometimes it's going to take longer and uh, you might need to add water to it. I usually add uh, hot water to it. So I'll use a tea kettle, an electric tea kettle to be able to add hot water to it as it's cooking. Um, and then just keep an eye on it. Uh, and I know that's not very scientifically or, you know, creative, um, but that's really part of, that's really what it is, is letting it just have the time on the stove to be able to cook as long as it can. Um, for service, you know, sometimes that can be a little hard. If I'm going to be serving black beans for dinner, I want it to be done at a certain time. So maybe just take a little extra time at the beginning to make sure that you're going to have that extra time at the end to be able to let them cook a little bit longer. Um, and that's really the secret to it is having an open top pot and giving it a little extra time if it needs it. Uh, so I hope that helps, Grace. Um, if you're having uh, more difficulties beyond that, you can always contact me too. Uh, Dina, what is your favorite recipe? Wow, that changes every single day. Um, so there, yeah, I don't have a, a favorite recipe because every single day I eat different things. And I also have two little kids that love to eat as well. And their palates are changing every single day too. Um, very consistently, we do, you know, tofu scramble tacos, breakfast tacos. Um, but, you know, as far as recipes go, we switch them out all the time. I typically try to do it in cycles and do it seasonally for a family so we can plan out our grocery lists ahead of time. Um, and then also throw in surprises, like when we go to the farmer's market and find something we didn't think we were going to find, you know. So I found a couple varieties of mushrooms, including lion's mane mushroom this week at the farmer's market. I didn't expect to find, but I was like, wow, that's great. I'm going to try it out. So I'll be using it for a different recipe this week. All right. So Elodie, so sorry, I have another question. Chef Nolan mentioned that she had a recipe for corn tortillas, but I wasn't able to find it. Can you gear me towards the recipe? Most store-bought have additives, salt, oil, and sugar, unfortunately. Yeah, you're totally right. So we actually have a great uh, corn tortilla recipe on the Plant-Based Pro class right now and the Plants Plus class right now um, that uh, Chef Chris came up with. It's a, a Oaxacan recipe. Um, and it's basically maize is really starting out with really the best, you know, finding a really good uh, maize flour that you can use is really the start. Uh, maybe a little bit of lemon or lime juice into it and water and working it into a ball. Um, and then after you get into that ball, splitting it into smaller pieces, flattening it all out and then putting it onto a hot pan to cook off. Super simple. Once it starts to smoke, flip it over and then um, if you get a little brown on it, actually that's even better. So that's one of the easiest corn recipes I know. Um, and, you know, you basically are going to add a little bit of water and then, you know, uh, mix it all up. And then you want to start to actually form a ball, but you don't want it to stick to your hands. And once it gets to that point, you're perfect. And I usually wrap it in saran wrap and let it sit for about a half an hour. And then I'll cut it into quarters and then cut it into ace and then get to about 16, depending on how much I'm doing, you know. Um, and then uh we'll take those and make them fresh that way so that's actually you know uh, i use that recipe very often and it works really well no added oils um i'll add lime juice sometimes but if i don't have a lime i don't typically you know so it just kind of works uh, the way you want it to i think that's one of the great things is be creative in the kitchen 
All right, uh, thank you for the fresh harassa uh, recipe, Chef. Uh, awesome, I love chili pepper. I'll put a piece of avocado or a teaspoon of tahini. Yep, that will work really well. Uh, no problem, Elodie. All right, from Sherry, cooking, uh, cooking one is an issue for me. I know fresh is best, but it's okay to chop, dice, and freeze the vegetables. Um, I think what you're saying, cooking for one is an issue um, for you. I know fresh is best, but is it totally okay to chop, dice, and freeze vegetables? Yeah, it totally is. Um, in fact, you have to do that sometimes um, to be able to, you know, just conserve. So it is, it's totally fine to be able to chop and dice and then freeze things depending on what the vegetable is. Some vegetables don't freeze very well at all, um, but other ones will store just great. So uh, I did do a um, event where you can look, look it up, just look my name up on live events. And you can um, find that I did a whole thing on batch cooking and it's actually, you know, chopping up vegetables early in the week to be able to use for later in the week. Um, you can also freeze different vegetables depending on they are. Like one of the things I love to do is, you know, freeze basil. It's in season in the garden. I'll put it in ice cube trays with just a tiny little bit of water and freeze it so I can use just the basil to be able to add in other things later. So, um, you know, uh, things like, um, oh, here's one, uh, a lotus thing. Uh, is the onions right so again that's something you can totally use you can dice up the onions um, and freeze them but you want to put them on a sheet tray beforehand to be able to make sure that they don't all clump together in one thing so if you freeze them on a sheet tray or a flat surface you'll be able to get them out as well too um let's see elodie is asking if the event is available on youtube yes it is so uh, if you search uh, you can search Dan Merrick on YouTube or Ruby Dan Merrick, and uh, you'll find the same event um, that you would find on our live event page here on Ruby, too. All right, so Victoria. Hi, Chef. This year, my broccoli, cauliflower, and cabbage didn't head in the garden. I have lots of amazing leaves from these plants, though. Do you have any experience cooking with any of these types of leaves? If uh, if so, are they tasty or versatile? Yeah, you know, I've cooked with uh, leaves from cauliflower and broccoli before. Um, I think I've only done it once or twice, though, and um, typically it was just because it was part of the entire stock. Um, but the stalks actually as well are edible, which is great. So, um, you know, uh, but were they good? They were okay. You know, I cooked them with a bunch of other greens. Um, so, uh, don't have a ton of experience in that, but um, you know, I always like to use the entire head of broccoli or cauliflower. So you'll see me often using the stems of the broccoli and just peeling off the outside skin um, of it, which is the kind of more dense or hard part of it. Um, and then chop up the stems as well too. The broccoli leaves, um, you know, you can just, uh, I, I, last time I did that, I think I threw them in with collard greens and mushrooms. Um, and it worked really well, and it just added a little bit of different flavor to it, almost like adding a microgreen to it, which is really great. Um, all right, Elodi, how often do you sharpen the knives? So uh, again, that's depending on how often you're using them. You know, if you're in a professional kitchen, you might be doing it every month. Uh, you know, if you are at home and you cook a lot, you might do it every six months. Um, you know, so just depending on how much you often or how often um, you're using your knives, depending on how often you have to sharpen them and also how well you treat them. You know, uh, a lot of people like um, staying at a house now that I see where uh, the uh, they had glass cutting boards when I um, came into the house and I just instantly moved them all out of the way because glass cutting boards actually dull your blade very fast. 
So if you're using a glass cutting board, you'd have to be, you know, doing it a lot more. So um, it really kind of depends on how often you're cooking, what surfaces you're, you know, cutting on as well too. But uh, at the very least, I'd say at least six months would be a good area. And if you can't cut through a tomato, you know, it needs to be sharpened. All right, so Peggy, do you have a good source for spice mix recipes? I do not have a sense of smell and limited taste, not COVID related, I always like this. So I rely on mixes and exact recipes to prepare for my family. There are a lot of different, um, uh, there are a lot of different, um, you know, spice mixes that are out there. It really also depends on what kind of food you're, you're making. So we do have a couple spice mix recipes on Ruby, on our Ruby page, which are great. Um, but you, uh, you know, it really depends on what you're looking for for each one. There are also a lot of, um, you know, spice mixes that just come all pre-packaged as well. And there's a huge variety of different spice makers out there. Try sourcing one locally instead of going with like the larger brand, like a McCormick's or something like that. Um, the local ones you'll actually see have a little bit more flavor to them because they're typically packaged a lot sooner. So it's a really nice way to be able to look at that as well. All right, um, so let's see. Uh, we've got our next one here is from Elodie saying, what's the difference between honing and sharpening? You seem to be mentioned a slight difference. Sorry if you've already answered the question. No, that's fine. So honing is basically when your blade, when you're using your blade and you're chopping it, the bottom of it starts to kind of curve over to one side. And so as that blade happens, it's curving over like this. And what's happening then is you're just getting the very tip of it, which is this really sharp edge starting to kind of curl over to one side. And as it's curled over like that, what you want to do is take your honing steel and basically go along like that as well. And it'll actually just uh, straighten out the very tip of the metal there to be able to make sure that it's, uh, it's straightened out and it's going to have the most exact point you possibly can. Um, now, sharpening is basically when it's kind of like already like that and you're basically trying to make it so it's in a v shape at the end so the very tip of your blade is going to cut down and the food will go off to either side like that now when it's honing it's basically kind of curved over and you can just move it back so it's kind of sh sharpened as well but when the sharpening phase happens basically what's happening is instead of getting a tip like this you're almost getting something like kind of like this at the very end and it's not going to cut through things very easily so you need to basically take some of the steel off so it basically makes that point at the end again instead of having a like a flat surface at the end so it's point, pointing that out really well and um sharpening is for when you can no longer hone it basically when it's curved over like that and you've moved it back and forth it's going to flatten out a little bit so sharpening is um when you can't hone the the or the, the knife anymore all right, so I have another one here Say, to, um, from Tariq. Instructions say, add this cold ingredient and simmer for five minutes. Do I start the timer right after the ingredient is added or only after it starts simmering? Well, typically, uh, the, if you're putting something into it and you're gonna start to sim, simmer, yeah, you're basically going from cold to simmer. So I would say if it's the cold ingredient goes in then you turn it to a simmer and then go for five minutes. Um, that's kind of situational a little bit though, and depending on the recipe and who wrote the recipe. Um, but I hope that helps to read. Sherry, what is the best way to cook short grain brown rice? I love the uh, misly brown rice, 
but I can purchase a large bag for the price of six bowls. Thank you. So uh, for short grain brown rice, it uh, really depends on what you're looking for out of it and the texture and uh, what style you're looking for. So I use short grain brown rice. Um, it's like sushi rice quite a bit and I like it for sticky rice. Um, but uh, you can also get it to the point, get it so it won't stick as much to each other. Um, but typically for those, I'm usually going to soak my rice for about 15 minutes before actually, you know, using it. And I'm going to uh, rinse it out to make sure I'm getting all the, the starches out of it, um, depending, you know, again, on the use for it. Um, and then after I do that, I'm going to do an almost one to two ratio, just depending on what you want. If you want a sticky rice, you can do a one to two ratio where one uh, cup of rice to two cups of water. Um, if you want it not to be as sticky, try maybe uh, a cup of rice to about a cup and uh, a cup and three quarters of water. And it'll actually be a little bit less on that. And you can go a little bit less water too if you want to. Um, and then basically bring it up to a simmer, down to a boil, and then, um, or <laughs> the other way around, bring it up to a boil and then down to a simmer. And then put a lid on it that's just loosely on so some of the steam can still escape out of the top of it. And then basically keep an eye on it, about 10 minutes-ish, you know, depending on uh, the grain. Um, but uh, about after 10 minutes, you should be able to go through with a fork and be able to fluff it up pretty easily. So that's the way that I typically do it. But again, it depends on the, um, the method. If you're looking for a stickier rice or a, a kind of a fluffier non-stick rice. Um, all right, so here's a great one on my all-clad stainless steel pan say I should not exceed two-thirds of the max power of my stovetop, but this way I can't achieve sufficient sizzling or sauteing. Would it be bad if I use maximum heat? I've never heard that from all-clad. I have a lot of all-clad pans, um, and the stainless steel ones I use, those are the ones I use. I, I stopped using um, the their non-stick pans because they they went bad just like every other nonstick pan I've ever had, and all clads are expensive. So um, I stopped buying their nonstick and I only use their stainless steel. And then I buy my uh, nonstick pans from a restaurant supply store for like 20 bucks. Um, so I don't know why you wouldn't be able to do two thirds of max power because the all clad stainless steel pans, also, you can put them in the oven at high temperatures, and I've used them like that before, and they work just fine. So I've never seen all clads say not to do two thirds of max power because they're made to, to do that. Um, and uh, you should be able to get sufficient sauteing and um, you know sizzling in there. You should be able to broil in there all their stuff as well too. So um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm not their warranty department, but I've used them in that way for years and years and they work fine. So I think you should be able to use your stove any way you want to and the pan should be able to take it, especially a stainless steel all-clad pan. That's a nice pan. It should take whatever you put into it. All right, um, so Carissi, uh, how would you use Swiss chard? I have a garden full and I only saute. Are there other ways to cook it? Oh my goodness, yes. I love Swiss chard and I, uh, I do rainbow chard as well. Um, you know, so I have done a lot of different, um, you know, things with them. So uh, Swiss chard, I'll typically, you know, dice some onions and mushrooms and then just do a no oil saute on them. And then, uh, and then add some greens over the top of those. So I'll chop up the chard really finely and then put those into the, um, you know, the pan after the onions and mushrooms have caramelized a little bit. 
cooking the uh, the greens down, you know, and very like a, it's very like a, a like a, a, a collard green kind of style with the mushrooms and onions. Add a little paprika. You can also do it in a sog too. So um, just a little bit of lemon juice. Um, you know, do a little bit of tomato paste into it, and then some you know just a variety of different Indian spices depending on what you have, and then you can uh, basically. Bring a pot of a water to boil. Just dip the chard in really quick, and then add to a food processor, and then blend it up, and it makes this amazing, um, you know, kind of greens sauce uh, that you can do. Um, there are a lot of different recipes for sog out there because there are hundreds of different ways to be able to make it. Um, you know, chard is also a great way to be able to use as a wrap instead of a tortilla. So you can actually just, um, you know, just quickly, um, you know, you, you can just either quickly microwave it or just put it over, you know, a, a steam basket and then just cut off the thick stem just a little bit to sh shave off. Then you can put your ingredients in and roll it and use it as a wrap, which is actually a fantastic way to be able to use chard. There are tons of ways to use chard. So those are a couple of them. I hope that helps for you. Um, all right, Theresa, hi, Chef, do you have a good vegan cheese recipe? We actually have a couple um, on our plant-based pro and our plants plus class. We have a couple different um, vegan cheeses in there. Now there are different varieties of those too. We have a sliced cheese that's actually in, I think our aquafaba unit. Um, and we have some like spreadable cheeses or like cashew cheeses uh, that are in uh, dairy alternative units as well too. Um, but yeah, it depends on the cheese you're looking for, but we do have a, a couple different varieties of those. I don't know those off the top of my head as much, except for the cashew one. I know that you're typically um, soaking your cashews overnight and then uh, straining off any excess liquid, um, then putting them through a cheesecloth with a little bit of lemon juice um, and uh, I can't remember all the things. I think there were salt that was added to it, um, and maybe even like a pink or a, yeah. I'm not. I don't know that one off the top of my head. But if you blend those all up, then then you can roll them into like a log and then put a crust on the outside. It's actually a really good recipe. Chad Sarno um, came up with years and years ago. You know, I used to work with him before Ruby. Um, so I hope that helps as well. There's so many different ones on the. Um, on the Ruby site. So if you go to the Ruby site and then you go on the top right, you can actually find the recipe page when you're signed into your, your account too. All right. So Elaine, I like to cook my brown rice pasta style with lots of water for 35 minutes, then drained in the strainer. Does the rice lose any nutrients when I do that? Um, you know, I know some people that do that and that's fine. That's a little bit different. Um, do you, do you lose any nutrients? So you are dumping some stuff out with the water, but typically like I'm rinsing my rice and, you know, soaking it beforehand. And I'm typically trying to get rid of, uh, you know, a lot of the starch that's basically in those. So I don't think you're losing too much on the nutrients on those when you come through, um, you know, and if it works for you and that's the way you like it, that's totally fine. Um, if you're cooking it in something like if you were cooking it in vegetable stock, you know, you'd definitely be losing some of the nutrients. But if you're using water, then you're not as much. And some of the nutrients will be absorbed into the rice if you're cooking it in a stock as well. Um, so, you know, it's a little, it's a tomato, tomato kind of situation. Um, and let's see, the, sorry, it's not all clad brand, but the fully clad steel pans from France, the Mouvelle brand. Wow, that is I don't know that brand, um, but if it says on the pan not to use it at two thirds, you probably should 
follow those rules. Um, I know all Clyde very well, but I don't know the other one that you're talking about. So sorry about that. And hi, Chef, do you have an easy phyllo dough recipe? Thanks, Michelle. I do not, Michelle. Phyllo dough is a hard one to do, and to do it vegan is even more hard. Um, I have talked to length with uh, Chef Fran, who does our uh, essential baking and desserts classes. And there's a lot of different ways to do this, and the easiest way is to go to the grocery store and buy the vegan version. Um, and I'm not joking. Everybody that I know that's a chef um, would prefer to get it already pre-made beforehand. Um, but uh, yeah, as far as uh, phyllo dough goes, there's no easy way to make a phyllo dough recipe. Um, it's a, a long and arduous process, and you have to have just the right kind of vegan butter to make it happen, um, and the arm strength and the patience to make it happen. So I don't have one off the top of my head, um, and the ones that I have seen that Chef Fran um, has shown me are not easy uh, by any means. Um, but you might want to inquire with Chef Fran, that's Fran at Ruby, to be able to get that recipe um, if she has one on hand. Well, it uh, looks like Dee added uh, some more cheese recipes there too, which is great. So um, thanks, Dee, for doing that. And it looks like we've reached the end of our questions. So uh, thank you guys so much for joining us. Sorry about the technical difficulties. Um, we had a great event here. And if you have any questions, join us for our next Ask Me Anything or Office Hours. Uh, we do these very regularly, and uh, if you have questions, you can email us in the meantime or wait for the office hours and ask me anything events. Thank you, and have a great rest of your day.